Good afternoon. Hello. Uh, I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Thank you all for being here. Um, thanks also to those of you watching online at uh, www.cato.org. And uh, as always, thanks to our outstanding conference staff here at Cato who, uh, who do so much to make these events come off without a hitch. So uh, it's not possible without them. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, Japan Security Evolution. This is a new paper by Professor Jennifer Lind from Dartmouth College. Um, in 2015, Japan passed landmark reforms to its national security laws, uh, including a reinterpretation of its constitutional prohibition against collective security activities. Now Japan can legally uh, cooperate with the United States in defensive military operations. This has led some observers to declare that Japan has abandoned its post-World War II pacifist principles. Uh, we're here to consider whether or not these pronouncements are correct, uh, or uh, contrary uh, to the to the these sentiments, uh, are these reforms simply the most recent recalibration of Japan's post-war grand strategy? Uh, and in this paper that uh, Professor Lin produced the, in the Cato Policy Analysis series, um, she contends that the cries of Japan abandoning pacifism are not only misleading, but really distort uh, the magnitude of the recent changes. While Japan prefers to uh, buck pass to the United States, it has historically accepted more responsibility in the alliance when its threat environment uh, grows increasingly dangerous and uncertainty exists about the U.S. commitment. And then the other question is then, what are the implications for U.S. security of a more assertive Japan if this is what we are, in fact, likely to see? Uh, does Japan's acceptance of more responsibility suggest perhaps that other U.S. allies would act accordingly if Washington were to step back? Um, it is great to have uh, Jenny here today to talk about this paper and address these and important questions. I've, I've followed her work for a long time. Um, uh, and I want to credit my former colleague, Justin Logan, who, when uh, Jenny published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last uh, August, I guess it was August, right, La uh, July or August of last year it was, uh, said, gee, this is a great article. Uh, would you be interested in writing a longer version? And, and we were both thrilled when she accepted. Uh, I think her first time here to Cato, right? Yes, first time, so welcome. It's great to have you here. Jennifer Lind is Associate Professor of Government at Dartmouth College. Uh, faculty associate at the Reichauer Institute of J Japanese Studies at Harvard, and a fellow in the U.S.-Japan Network for the Future. She's the author of Sorry States, Apologies in International Politics, and she has also published scholarly articles in International Security and International Studies Quarterly, and she writes for wider audience and publications such as The Atlantic and Foreign Affairs. In the autumn of 2014, she was a fellow at the Sasakawa Peace Foundation and a visiting scholar at the Waseda University for Advanced Study in Tokyo. Uh, she has worked as a consultant for the RAND Corporation and for the Office of the Secretary of Defense, uh, and previously lived and worked in Japan. She holds a PhD in political science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a uh, master's from UC San Diego and a BA from UC Berkeley. So with that, Jennifer, take it away. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming out today. I, I think, is it me who has to apologize for bringing the Arctic wind with me from New Hampshire? 
Um, I was like, well, I'm going south. I don't even need to bring a coat, but I'm, I'm glad I actually did. It's pretty chilly down here. Um, so Chris just gave a, a really excellent introduction to the, the recent conversation that we've been having about Japan, again, sparked by the security legislation that was just recently passed in the fall. And this, the conventional wisdom on this, which I was just reading in, in a few newspaper articles just this morning, uh, is, is this uh, idea that Japan is doing something dramatic, that Japan is abandoning pacifism, this long tradition of pacifism, and that what we're seeing is, is frequently referred to in using this word, the, the remilitarization of Japan. So the, the headlines, uh, that's sort of like Japanese security word bingo, um, remilitarization, muscular, uh, pacifism, you know, so, so it's all the same words are appearing and the, the idea again is that there's, there's big changes in the works. And so this is what I wanted to examine in this paper. And I argue that this conventional wisdom is wrong, not just in one way, in, in actually multiple ways. So Japan isn't abandoning pacifism now. It actually considered pacifism and abandoned it in the 1950s. So again, not exactly breaking news. Uh, and furthermore, the changes we're seeing in Japan's security posture are just the most recent, as, as Chris said, recalibration of the same grand strategy that Japan has been pursuing for all these years, uh, which I refer to as buck passing. So what we're witnessing in Japanese security policy is actually continuity as opposed to change. At least, let me emphasize, in Japan's strategic choices. So we are seeing a lot of change. We're seeing changes in the East Asian international security environment. We're seeing changes in the roles that Japan is willing to do. But what seems to be very consistent here is this grand strategy of buck passing. Japan had initially contemplated pacifism in the early years after World War II. The Americans had dismantled Japan's military and written, as it's called, the Peace Constitution. Article 9 of that constitution states that the Japanese people forever renounce war as a tool of statecraft. And it says, the constitution says that land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. In the aftermath of the war, many Japanese were deeply in favor of this kind of pacifist stance. And there were a whole host of reasons for this. So first of all, the people were exhausted. They were, they were grieving for the, the people they'd lost. Uh, they felt betrayed by their leaders, by the political hawks, by the military, who people feel tricked the Japanese into this, this terrible war. So, People felt that a pacifist foreign policy would, first of all, avoid getting Japan into more wars. It would also check the power of those hawks in Japan's uh, political economic establishment. And, and so again, there was this notion that they tricked us once before. We have to make sure they can't do this again. And a pacifist, a highly restrained grand strategy would be the best way to limit their power. And then also there was the issue of their, their potential ally, again, that they were considering at the time, is how closely did they want to bind themselves to the United States. And many Japanese were quite worried in the 1950s. If you think back to what was going on then, these were pretty interesting times, right, in terms of multiple 
dangerous crises going on over Berlin, uh, Taiwan, and then eventually Cuba as well. And so many Japanese were worried that American bases would draw them into pretty dangerous uh, nuclear wars with the Soviet Union and with China. So the public and leaders wanted to avoid building a big military that America would then drag into its adventures. So those were all the reasons why pacifism had a lot of appeal. But despite that, the conservative leaders ended up settling on a grand strategy that was based on limited rearmament and on the US-Japan alliance as the foundation of Japan's national security strategy. This was pushed by Prime Minister Shigeru Yoshida. And under, under his watch, the cabinet made the decision to, as we say, reinterpret Article 9. Now, remember what I read to you, that, that under Article 9, land, sea, or air forces may never be maintained, right? And of course, could never be used because they don't exist. Uh, but Article 9 was reinterpreted to say that according to the UN Charter, such defensive forces were legal. That under the UN Charter, every state had a right to self-defense, and that Japan was no exception. Japan granted the US the right of military bases and created the Self-Defense Forces, or SDF. Um, but at the same time, the Japanese conservatives really wanted to focus on economic reconstruction, uh, growing their economy. And then again, they were very worried about getting entangled in America's Cold War military adventures. So the idea was that Japan would do as little in the security realm as possible, that it would pass the buck to Washington. So let me talk about this strategy of buck passing. According to this logic, a country seeks to maintain a favorable balance of power, but it generally wants to shift the burden of balancing, so of, of building up military forces, to its ally. If the threat environment worsens, the buck passer prefers to have allies pay the costs of balancing. And a buck passer will increase its defense commitment if the ally fails to respond adequately. So let's talk about what this looked like in practice during the Cold War. From 1950 until the mid-1970s, the US and Japan enjoyed, for the most part, a favorable balance of power in East Asia relative to their adversaries. During this period, Japan indeed built up little in the way of military power and dodged Washington's request to contribute forces to American military operations in Korea and in Vietnam. But what we see is a noticeable worsening of Japan's security environment in the 1970s. The Soviet Union began a major military buildup in East Asia, enlarging and improving its Pacific fleet, its regional air forces, and also its base footprint throughout the region. And most alarming to Japan, the Soviets also increased their amphibious capabilities in the Kuril Islands, threatening Japan's northernmost island of Hokkaido. Not only was Soviet power growing in East Asia, the United States was actually drawing down its forces in the region. The US pulled its forces out of Vietnam, and Nixon declared the Nixon, Nixon or Guam Doctrine, as it's called, in which he informed allies that they had to do the heavy lifting in their alliances with the United States. The Carter administration proposed to remove all US troops from the Korean Peninsula and also was reducing its regional footprint overall. After the Shah's overthrow in Iran and the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, Washington's gaze 
and American military forces were increasingly directed toward the Persian Gulf. Japan responded to this worsening threat environment by building up its military capabilities and by taking on new roles in the US-Japan alliance. Tokyo acquired a world-class air force, embarked on a substantial naval buildup, indeed one that would give it, it, put it in the position of being one of the top navies in the world. Japan also increased its military activism within the US-Japan alliance. In 1978, the two countries signed the Guidelines for Defense Cooperation, in which Japan agreed to expand its military participation beyond its homeland to operations throughout East Asia. The two militaries began planning and training for sea lane defense, joint operations, and interoperability. Under Prime Minister Zenko Suzuki, Japan accepted the responsibility of patrolling sea lanes up to 1,000 nautical miles from Japan's coasts. In short, when the threat went up and when the US seemed less willing to devote military capabilities and diplomatic attention to the region, Japan responded by increasing its capabilities and its military roles. Let's talk about this logic applied to today. Just as during the Cold War, Japan is facing a worsening environment, a threat environment in East Asia. China, of course, has been steadily modernizing its maritime forces and acting increasingly assertive in its maritime disputes. Tensions over the disputed Senkaku or Daoyu Islands are rising between the two countries. In Japan in 2005, 40% of respondents said they viewed China unfavorably. By 2013, that figure had risen to 93%. Respondents say that their unfavorable impression was largely due to China's actions in the Senkaku Islands and to China's policies being incompatible with international law. Also similar to the 1970s, Tokyo has concerns about the degree to which its interests and US interests remain congruent. Part of it is that the US remains distracted in the Middle East, and part of it relates to this asymmetry of interests in the US-Japan alliance, specifically over the Senkaku Islands. Advocates of the 2015 legislation argue that growing uncertainty over whether the US would actually defend those islands requires Japan to play a larger role in the alliance today. Now, of course, US officials, all the way up to President Obama, have repeatedly declared that the US, sorry, that the islands remain protected by the alliance. But despite such assurances, many in Japan question, will the United States risk an unwanted and potentially devastating war with China? After all, a nuclear-armed country and a vital political and economic partner over an issue in which the US has no direct interest. As it did during the Cold War, Japan is responding to these worsening strategic conditions by increasing its military activism. In 2014, Shinzo Abe's cabinet passed a highly controversial official reinterpretation of the Constitution that declares collective security operations constitutional. In addition, under Abe, the US and Japan have revised those defense guidelines. These deepen interoperability further within the alliance. They spell out the nature of cooperation in peacetime versus wartime on intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, air and missile defense, maritime security, asset protection, 
training and exercises, logistic support, and use of facilities. The new guidelines detail how the US and Japan would respond before, after, and during an attack on Japanese territory. For the first time, the guidelines also indicate space and cyber as two areas for expanding US-Japan cooperation. They also discuss armaments cooperation, which of course has only been made possible in the aftermath of Japan's overturning its arms export ban in 2004. The guidelines announce a whole of government approach, uh, such as a new feature known as the Alliance Coordination Mechanism, which is comprised of top officials from each country that seeks to streamline communication and coordination between the SDF and the US military. So what we see in these current developments is a more th threatening security environment in East Asia. And we see Japan removing institutional roadblocks to military participation and taking on more roles within the US-Japan alliance. In short, this behavior is anything but an abandonment of Japan's previous strategy. Tokyo is merely updating the same strategy it has pursued since World War II. These policies conform to the pattern that Japan does more when it feels threatened and when it's unsure about the extent of the US commitment. Now, let me just say a few words about what this suggests for grand strategy and US foreign policy. This analysis shows Japan's sensitivity to its external environment and to alliance conditions. So Japan increases its defense contributions if threats rise and when the US does less. This has implications for ongoing foreign policy debates in the United States. Advocates of the current US grand strategy, so if you call it deep engagement or liberal internationalism or whatever you call it, um, those advocates frequently argue that we need to update our alliances or, or fix them and they always, basically, every op-ed you read on this topic concludes with saying, we need to ask our allies to do more. Um, I was sitting in a Bedford, New Hampshire elementary school and, and asked Marco Rubio this campaign season about the US-Korea alliance and a few other topics. And he said these words also. He said, we need to ask our Asian allies to do more. And so I think what this history of our alliance relationship shows is that Japan will at times do more, um, but only when the US is also doing less. And this history shows that at those times, when the US does less, it's neither automatic nor straightforward that Japan is able to increase its, its capabilities and contributions, that there, there are very strong dovish sentiments, anti-militarist sentiments in Japan. And, and even though Abe and other security pragmatists there uh, do often want to take Japan in a more activist direction, that they do face a hard road at home to get the security legislation and other measures passed. But over the years, to meet rising threats and to respond to alliance demand, we see that Japan has increased its both its capabilities and its contributions over time. Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Um, it's now my pleasure to introduce uh, our two distinguished commentators. Uh, first to speak is Amy, Dr. Amy Seawright. She's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for South and Southeast Asia, 
within the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asian and Pacific Security Affairs, where she serves as the principal advisor for all policy matters pertaining to development and implementation of defense strategies and plans for the region. She joined the Office of Secretary of Defense in October 2012 as the principal director for East Asia, and prior to that served in the U.S. Uh, Agency for International Development. She was assistant professor at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University and an adjunct fellow at the Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic International Studies. As a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow in 2003 and 2004, Dr. Seawright served in the U.S. Department of State on the policy planning staff. She received her Ph.D. in political science from Stanford. Our second speaker today is Emma Chandlett Avery. She's a specialist in Asian Affairs in the Foreign Affairs, Defense, and Trade Division of the Congressional Research Service. She focuses on security issues in the region, including U.S. relations with North Korea, Japan, Thailand, and Singapore. She's a graduate of Amherst College and the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia. She has held positions in the State Department in the Office of Policy Planning and on the Korea desk, uh, as well as the Joint U.S. Military Advisory Group in Bangkok, Thailand. She's held a number of professional and academic fellowships, including the Amherst Dashisha Fellowship, the Harold Rosenthal Fellowship in International Relations, the Foreign Language and Area Studies Fellowship in Advanced Japanese, uh, and the American Assembly Next Generation Fellowship, uh, and uh, was a speaker and a specialist uh, grant from the U.S. Department of State. So with that, Dr. Seawright. Uh, would you speak from the podium? It's easier for the for the, and then we'll do Q and A from the panel. Sorry about that. Yeah. I have a messy collection of cards. Uh, one of the dangers of inviting a busy policymaker is we don't have time to actually really prepare coherent remarks. So I've been scribbling on cards um, this morning, um, but I do have a lot of thoughts, and I appreciate the invitation uh, to to come and and uh, enter this conversation. I should say first that um, these remarks are my personal views. They do not represent the United States government, the Department of Defense, or, or um, yeah, anyone else in, in the US government. Um, you know, I used to be a Japan scholar uh, back in my former career. And so it's, a, it's delightful to get to come and, and re-engage in some of these, uh, these theoretical debates uh, that do have real world uh, implications. Um, as mentioned in my bio, I first joined the Pentagon as uh, principal director for East Asia, where I was working directly on Japan and Korea and China. But, you know, with the Japan desk, we were really focused on negotiating the revised defense guidelines that subsequently have been um, implemented. Um, and so, uh, so I know a little bit about that. But my current day job, I do not work directly on Japan issues. I work on South and Southeast Asia issues. So I travel the region a lot. I uh, work on our bilateral partnerships everywhere from India to Australia, throughout the ASEAN region. Uh, it's a very dynamic, exciting place. Obviously, right now, a lot is going on. Uh, it's a very changing, dynamic security environment. So Japan's role is very relevant there. So first off, I want to say that you know Jennifer's argument that um, th that that this has really been a gradual evolution of Japan's defense policy, um, I completely agree with. You know, as Andrew Oros and Thomas Berger and many others have also made this argument in different ways. Um, you know, that it is it is historically inaccurate to think of Japan as formerly pacifist and now leaping into some kind of militarist or remilitarization kind of phase, as Jennifer very rightly uh, articulates. 
it, this is not black and white. Really, Japan's evolution has been an evolution, you know, in shades of gray, um, and we are, you know, just seeing that continue. So, uh, you know, it's been a very path-dependent process or historical institutionalist, whatever label you want to use, but, you know, this is the way evolution change happens in most societies, certainly in Japan. And so it makes sense to point out that continuity, both because it's, you know, there's a lot of simplistic uh, media understanding out there about this change, um, you know, commentary and everything, the record needs to be corrected, and also because... Uh, I think it's important to note that China is very aggressively pushing a narrative that Japan is transforming overnight, ripping the mask off, remilitarizing, you know, going back to its its bad old days. Um, and you know, China may China policymakers may well sincerely believe that, but they are aggressively pushing this narrative in the region. So I think it's important to take a look at the historical facts and the present and and be very clear-eyed about what's going on. However, I will um, make a, just a couple of remarks to quibble a little bit at the margins with, uh, with, the, with the portrayal of, of this being more about continuity than change. Um, and in part, the, I'll do it by shifting the focus a little bit away from the bilateral lens of the US-Japan Bilateral Security Alliance to take a little bit of a, of a broader picture. But before I do that, let me just say a couple words about the bilateral alliance, um, and in particular, the revision of the defense guidelines. Um, I would not want to understate the significance of you know, Japan's move to collective uh, uh, self-defense and the ability to revise the defense guidelines the way they were revised. Now, I think there's evidence on both sides of the ledger. And I'm not working on Japan right now, so this is very impressionistic. This is not based on actual understanding of what's going on in the bilateral security relationship, because I don't work these issues day to day anymore. Um, but you know, we have now set up a framework under which we really can do a lot more together and have a lot more clarity about what Japan can do, which allows us to plan and train and exercise and eventually operate in a contingency together. And that is really significant. Um, so I wouldn't want to downplay that, even though we've had defense guidelines since 1978, and we revised them uh, once before in the 90s, and that kind of edged us up a little bit. But this really, when fully implemented, um, and fully, uh, fully implemented, which includes all kinds of exercises and planning and other things that will take place, I think it will significantly, substantially change the interoperability and our ability to work as an alliance together. So it's a real force multiplier, not to mention, which you rightly point out in your paper, we, you know, we brought in new areas of cooperation, such as cyber and space. So it's really pushing us into the 21st century. Now, some evidence for the continuity side of the ledger is that implementation of these guidelines has been somewhat slower, I think, than what we would have liked based on domestic sensitivities and electoral election cycles and that sort of thing in Japan. So there is you know, clearly some constraints. But, um, but I think it, you know, I just want to underscore that it really does lay the foundation th through things like the alliance coordination mechanism, which is up and running and was used in the recent uh, North Korea uh, rocket launch, uh, missile launch, excuse me. So, um, you know, we use the alliance coordination mechanism to uh, coordinate our, our reaction and responses uh, in real time. So we, you know, this is, a, this is an important change. Um, and I also think it's very interesting, and, and you didn't really address this, Jennifer, in your paper, but, you know, when, when, uh, when Dick Samuels 
was talking about the, the debates around Japan stepping up its game a little bit um, into being more active on the defense side. And there's been a live debate going on for decades, really, about, you know, is Japan seeking to sec step up its defense capabilities as a way to ultimately tell the United States to go home? Uh, you know, we can, t you know, to have a kind of uh, unilateral rearmament uh, so that Japan can take care of itself, um, which was an active debate going back to the days of Yoshida. Um, or is it going to strengthen its position in the context of the U.S. Security Alliance, binding itself ever more tightly to that bilateral security alliance? And I think it's, and I heard a lot of voices in Japan from our forces stationed there, from policymakers, from Japanese academics, as, as shortly as five or ten years ago, that actually there was a real possibility of Japan moving in a more um, self-reliant direction. But I think we've seen a lot of evidence that the opposite is true, that in fact Japan, through things like the defense guidelines, through a whole host of other things, really has bound itself ever more tightly to the U.S. Security Alliance uh, network, shall I say, the U.S. Security Alliance system um, in a way that I, I think is very interesting uh, as well. That's just sort of a side note. But let me shift the lens a little bit to more regional lens because, as I said, I travel out in the region um, a lot and talk to all kinds of partners. And here is where I think we really see a, a change that's worth noting, which is Japan's much more active regional defense diplomacy. Um, and under Prime Minister Abe, who he himself has been very personally active, very committed, very involved in building up relationships, not just with the United States, with India, with Australia, with ASEAN countries, I will tell you that I hear directly from counterparts about how much they notice this difference, or I should say it differently, because now everyone is almost used to Japan being so out and active. But I was in a bilateral meeting with the Secretary of Defense and an uh, ASEAN counterpart, very important ASEAN uh, uh, country. Um, and that defense minister started sort of complaining about Japan. This is about three years ago, saying like, I don't know, why is Japan coming and trying to talk to me all the time? And they want to meet with ASEAN defense ministers to, together in a plus one meeting. And do you understand what their motivation is? Like, what, what are they up to, you know? It's really weird. And uh, I found that remarkable and um, you know, made me realize that this ASEAN defense minister had never really dealt with, and his colleagues in the Department of Defense had never dealt with the Japanese defense ministry before. Japan, as we all know, has had a very active regional engagement on the economic side and on the diplomatic side, but not on the defense side. And suddenly Japan was showing up to these regional defense meetings and showing up in bilateral visits and saying, hey, we want to talk to you. Let's talk about the South China Sea. Let's talk about capacity building for your country. And Japan is now actively involved as part of the uh, lift on arms exports, which I think is very, very significant uh, in terms of a long-term change. Japan is actively talking to Vietnam about uh, patrol boats for its Coast Guard. It's talking to Philippines about maritime patrol aircraft for their Navy. Um, you know, it is really kind of moving out in a way remarkably quickly given where Japan was just a few years ago. And again, this is very much under Prime Minister Abe's leadership and drive to really push his system forward in this area. So now when we meet with the same counterpart, uh, he doesn't, you know, when he mentions Japan, it's just in a very normal kind of positive way of, 
allies and partners that we want to work together with. So it, Japan has now normalized its active defense diplomacy in the region, in large parts of the region. There are a couple of minor exceptions, perhaps, but and certainly they're the old legacies in Northeast Asia. But you know, in the broader region, um, it, it, they've really noticed a difference. India has embraced Japan, um, and I think that is a very interesting dynamic that has huge regional implications as that relationship develops and grows. And then it's also really important, again, to point to Australia. Um, you know, Japan has really stepped up its game in the midst of this uh, 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 competition for procuring Australia's next uh, submarines. They're in competition with Germany and France. We don't know what Australia will pick. But, uh, but Japan has really, uh, really stepped up its game to try to figure out how to do this big important uh, deal which could really you know have big important bilateral defense implications between Japan and Australia and uh, conceivably could strengthen the trilateral relationship as well with the United States. We have these trilateral frameworks with with Japan and Australia. We have a strategic dialogue kind of framework with Japan and India. Um, the Australia Japan US trilateral one also it's just worth noting is remarkably different now than what it was even five or ten years ago. We are now integrating Japan into all of pretty much, not all, but virtually all of our bilateral exercises with Australia, including our, our uh, premier annual exercise, Talisman Saber. Japan is now a regular participant, and it's, it's participating in Jackaroo and all kinds of other military exercises. We have integrated Japan into our biannual premier flagship exercise with India, Malabar, the naval exercise. Japan is now a regular, you know, India has agreed that Japan will be a regular annual participant. Um, we are, we have Australia integrated into our uh, annual exercise with the Philippines, which is about to launch, Bali Katan, and Japan is participating as an observer. Japan very much wants to participate more. They're, Japan is talking to the Philippines about a status of forces agreement so that Japan can regularly participate in those kinds of exercise, exercises. So when you look out in the region and you think, you know, where are we going to be in five or ten years? Where is Japan going to be? You know, where is the U.S.-Japan alliance going to be? You know, the U.S.-Japan alliance is going to be stronger for sure. But I think it's going to be what, what's really remarkable is how much more networked we're all going to be, exercising together, working together. Because it is a dangerous neighborhood, the, dyna the regional dynamics, the security dynamics are, um, are, are evolving and they're concerning. And so everyone is looking to step up their game and figure out more effective ways to work together, to build capacity, to build interoperability, to build habits of cooperation and public messaging and other you know, diplomatic strategies to try to maintain this very important uh, rules-based order. So, um, so you know, it just gets to this back to this kind of philosophical question of how do we measure continuity? How do we measure change? You know, I think it's it's always good to be the case that you can point to a lot of continuity, a lot of domestic sensitivities um, that will remain in Japan, and institutional mechanisms to try to make sure that the Japanese government doesn't push you know uh, the defense policy too far too fast. But at the same time. We are seeing some really significant changes and the groundwork being laid for what really will be significant down the line. So it just becomes this question of, you know, at what point do you say, well, this, there's been enough cumulative change here that there really is a change. Um, I have been obsessed with the uh, camera on the bald eagles in the Washington Arboretum. I don't know if any of you are watching this. 
I watch it every night when I get home from work, uh, have to see how the eaglets are doing. Um, and, you know, if I keep, like, if, if you watch this camera every day, uh, you'll see the mama or papa eagle sitting on top of these two really weird-looking furry kind of, you know, um, uh, bobby uh, little eaglets. Um, and these eaglets obviously are going to grow. They're growing every day. At some point, they're going to look like their mother and father, full, full-fledged bald eagles. Um, but you're, it's going to be hard to find that day where you look at the camera and you say, oh, it's no longer an eaglet. It's now a bald eagle, right? So I think what would be helpful for me anyway, analytically, is, is for scholars to, to, to uh, take the argument further, to try to kind of lay out some benchmarks about uh, change. You know, at what point would we think of, uh, there's been enough change that occurred under Abe or under the past five or 10 years um, that we really can see that, you know, Japan is, has kind of moved, has, has reached a different level or is, is, is kind of different. I'm not sure that saying Japan has long buck passed and so it still has a buck passing strategy. It does a little more when the neighborhood's more, more dangerous. I, I don't know if that fully captures what's going on. I mean, I think, again, if you did a counterfactual and you took Abe out of the picture and you imagined a more typical Japanese uh, period of history where in the past five years we would have had five prime ministers um, you know, would we still be saying it's just been this very gradual, incremental evolution? You know, I think Abe really has made a difference over the past five years. Again, as I keep saying, I think in, we'll see that even more clearly in the next five or ten years as some of these things really take shape. But, um, but uh, you know, the, the one thing I think I disagree with is the idea is that you express at the end, which is that Japan will only, what did you say, Japan will only step up will only do more when the US does less. I think, first of all, and this is perhaps a very parochial view, I think the US is doing a lot more in Asia. Um, you know, We've negotiated rotational defense agreements with the Philippines and with Australia. We are doing more exercises than ever before. We have more presence. We are more engaged you know, in the rebalance, senior official. You know, I'm going with the secretary in two weeks to India and the Philippines. We are out there every few months, it feels like, doing these high-level engagements. And, really messaging to the region how, how much emphasis we put on the region. So from my vantage point anyway, the US is doing more, and yet we see Japan doing more. And we also see Australia doing more in the region, and we see India saying at least it's going to step up and do more, and a whole host of other countries. So I, you know, I don't, I'd see a slightly different dynamic than just the US is distracted in the Middle East and so other countries are stepping up. I think the Everyone is stepping up due to the uh, security environment dynamics and the importance, the recognition that it's important that everyone kind of step up and figure out how to work together to maintain what we all value so much. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, I want to say what a pleasure it is to serve on a panel of all women talking about Asian security and the fact that no one's even mentioned that yet. Um, that's, a, that's, I think, a great sign. Um, I also was, as I was sitting there listening to your um, eagle, you know, thing, I was trying to spin out this metaphor how maybe the panda cam from a few years ago was China, and I couldn't, I couldn't quite get there. But, I know, bald eagle's uh, not really the right metaphor. Like right. I'll work on that. Um, I, too, have to uh, have a disclaimer here that these views are all my own. They do not represent those of CRS um, or of Congress. Um, 
thank goodness. Um, and I also want to echo, I think that some of the things I have to say here um, in some ways are going to echo what Amy just said. Um, first is that it was a tremendously helpful overview of um, when and how and why Japan has adjusted its security stance over the years. This is exactly the kind of article when you're in grad school you wish you could find, you know, <laughs> for that paper. Um, and I also um, very much agree um, with Jenny's argument that this has been um, incremental change over time. I mean, the DPJ administration, past LDP administrations have also advanced security reforms. But I do think that Abe has very much accelerated those reforms, and he has had the political power and the longevity in office um, to push for, for these um, bolder measures. Um, so using this paper sort of as a springboard, I'd like to draw out a couple of more areas. Um, the first is um, I sort of see that as Japan has adopted more forward-leaning defense postures, um, it did so almost exclusively within the framework of the US-Japan alliance. Um, and it did so in ways that really made the two militaries more integrated um, and more intertwined. And the second area um, is sort of a, a cautionary note about how these recent measures could fare given that the Japanese public has expressed a, a limited appetite um, uh, for some of these changes. Um, on the first point, um, Jenny you know, has this uh, passing the buck strategy, and I think that's very much the case. But in the process of passing the buck, Japan has received a lot of assurances from the strongest military in the world that it was committed to defending Japan. Um, in the, and there's a little bit of a rundown of, of um, the, the, the history that you mentioned here. In the post-war, um, as Jenny says, they very much crafted a grand strategy that was based on limited rearmament um, and using the US-Japan alliance as sort of the foundation of their security strategy. In the 70s, as the US withdrew from Vietnam in somewhat humbling fashion, um, Japan accelerated its military capabilities, um, but largely through purchases of, of um, air and naval equipment um, that complemented the, the U.S. power and the U.S. abilities. In the post-Cold War period, the um, missile threat from North Korea um, led Japan in, in many ways uh, to start co-developing um, and implementing um, ballistic missile defense and, and since then has continued to integrate themselves into the U.S. system um, of defending the Asia-Pacific. In the present day, of course, the threats remain from North Korea. Um, and increasingly from China, particularly in terms of these territorial disputes in the East China Sea, um, which has led Japan to adopt these new 2015 guidelines that, that Amy talked about um, in some detail. And when I look at these guidelines, I do think that they very much intertwine the two alliances much more closely. Um, and it makes it more difficult for each country to avoid being drawn into the conflicts of the other. Um, particularly because of the, um, uh, including the gray zone contingency area. Um, that could mean an entanglement for the United States in the Senkaku disputes. And Japan's adoption of collective self-defense, or the reinterpretation of the ability to exercise collective self-defense, um, could lead to more involvement in the United States commitments, uh, conflicts rather. The United States, in response to this, I think has very much rhetorically ratcheted up its commitment um, to defend Japan, including these small uninhabited islets um, that, that, that China also claims. So I look at this pattern as, as sort of a, you know, from the end of the World War II to the present day, showing that while Japan may have passed the buck 
while incrementally increasing its defense capabilities, it did so very much within the confines of the U.S.-Japan alliance, and it did so in ways that reinforced the U.S. commitment to Japan and wove the operations of the two militaries ever closer. And as um, Amy pointed out, this is, we see this happening now um, in the region, where Japan is sort of expanding its partnerships with Australia, India, Vietnam, the Philippines, um, and, and becoming more integrated into a regional security system. And to take this just a little bit further, I think it's a little bit difficult to argue that Japan could and would have taken on the same kinds of responsibility if the US guarantee hadn't been in place. If Japan had been forced to go it alone, um, it may have looked to very different approaches um, for its own security that could have been destabilizing for the region um, and counter to some of the US interests in the region. And I think the most alarming of those options may have been the development of their own nuclear weapons program, which of course we can talk about um, at great length, but I just want to point that out as one argument. The second area um, is, is whether these new changes adopted by the Abe government are really durable in the long term, um, and if they could go further than they have presently, um, given the less than completely enthusiastic support from the Japanese public. And uh, we will see, I think, as um, Japan looks to implement these changes, exactly how far they are willing to go. Um, if you followed over the summer as um, the Abe government was trying to push this um, security legislation through their diet, um, we really saw some, some large-scale protests in Japan. I mean, some media outlets said up to 100,000 people there. We also saw local assemblies um, you know, in rural parts of Japan adopting resolutions that oppose this. We saw you know, thousands of scholars and public intellectuals signing letters um, that disagreed with this. So I think you do see some of, you know, a fairly large-scale um, resistance um, and some sort of lingering elements of the, of, of the pacifist sentiment uh, within, the, within the Japanese public. Um, I think it's not totally clear exactly how widespread these sentiments are, um, but I think that the, these demonstrations did indicate a degree of passion, and Japan is not a place that is very quick to jump to large-scale um, demonstrations, particularly in response to changes that some defense analysts see as, as relatively modest. So I think that there is a limit um, to how much Japan will be able to contribute, um, given their fiscal constraints, given this public sentiment, um, given remaining um, legal and constitutional barriers. Um, Abe appears to have a desire to amend um, Article 9 of their constitution, but I think that particularly after the experience of this summer, that's seeming increasingly far-fetched, and that is, would probably be a necessary prerequisite for Japan going much beyond um, what they've indicated they're willing to do now. Um, as Jenny points out in this article, I think there's little doubt that Japan is viewing China um, increasingly as a military threat. Um, but is this concern enough for Japan to really fundamentally adjust its security policy? There's also the related question of how popular Abe really is. There's some people who say that his popularity is sort of, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. Does it just take a scandal or a change in leadership and you see these, these changes um, go in reverse? And then there's um, sort of a more emotional but maybe sort of more fundamental question that, that you might want to think about, about Japan's willingness to engage more broadly in security operations. Since the end of World War II, Japan has not had the experience of um, seeing or 
the experience of one of its soldiers being killed overseas or one of its soldiers killing um, an adversary overseas. And I think that that experience, which could be a real reckoning, may have reverberations um, that are really dif difficult to predict um, in terms of the future of their security posture. Thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Amy and Emma. Um, do you want to respond to any of those comments, Jenny, first, or would you rather just go to, to Q&A? We have, we have Amy's time for about 10 more minutes. We'll continue the Q&A after, but uh, is there anything you wanted to respond to? or? or? Um, I, since, since Amy has to leave early, I think we should get as much Amy as we possibly can before okay. she leaves. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, then in that case, uh, I, I might exercise my, my uh, moderator's prerogative because I think Amy asked to. I, I was having trouble following the the uh, eaglet uh, metaphor because I haven't been watching them on TV. But then, it, but then I understood exactly what you meant because I, I and I. We need a benchmark, or, or or some criteria, right, to to determine, uh, you know, is this more uh, continuity or is this more a, a, a representative of real change. Um, Many years ago, longer than I care to remember, uh, I wrote about U.S.-Japan policy. This is in the early 1990s. And the benchmark back then, the benchmark for assessing the success of U.S. policy towards Japan in the bilateral relationship was, and this is a direct quote from the time, that the U.S. military presence served as a cork in the bottle, right? And by that standard, um, I would argue the kinds of steps that Japan has taken just in the last few years, while maybe not, as Emma says, maybe not as destabilizing as some of the other steps they might have taken, would have looked like a failure of U.S. policy in the early, early 1990s. In other words, that if Japan was taking a more assertive posture, this would imply that they were not feeling as reassured and therefore the cork had some... Uh, again, I'm not good with metaphors, was, was leaking, right? Um, so maybe one of the benchmarks is level of effort, which is measured imperfectly by uh, spending as a share of GDP, which is a horrible metric. I hate it, but whatever. It's the best. It's maybe one of the best we have for these purposes. Um, is that a benchmark that's useful? If military spending in Japan goes over the next decade or more from... Uh, one to one and a half or one and three quarters, uh, is, is that a sign that we have transitioned to something more more serious? Is that is that a useful benchmark? I ask. Okay. Uh, questions from the audience. Okay, now, so we have some, what? So should we respond? Well, well I, I no one jumped at it. So while, while they're, would you like to respond, Jenny, while we're, while our mic holders are, are transitioning right there and, uh, on the wall there. Go ahead. So um, I, I think that we could certainly think of, of benchmarks, and that actually that's a really, really useful thing to do. And, and also it's a very academic-y, wonky thing to do. So of course I respond immediately positively to the <laughs> suggestion, ooh. Um, I, in another paper I'm writing on, on Japanese nationalism, we actually break it down into categories of national interests and also level of assertiveness. And so we're, we are looking at different indicators of assertiveness. And one of our indicators is, you know, for all of its problems, uh, we do look at percentage of military spending on GDP, sorry, percentage of GDP on military spending. 
And so um, I, I think that is a useful, a useful guide. Uh, and, and just again, so we, we, we look at all the changes that Japan is doing, as and Amy points out, there's some really remarkable changes going on here in terms of relative to Japan in the past, what Japan is willing to do. Uh, truly remarkable and, and worth commenting on, and, and definitely we need to observe this and comment on it and, and, and note that this is something that is hard for, for Abe to lead his country toward, and it's hard for the Japanese people, and they're, they're having trouble supporting it. So, so it's definitely worth noting that. Um, I think one thing that actually is, is useful about being a New Hampshire academic in this debate is that there's a tendency that in conversations about Japan is only comparing Japan to itself over time. And in that framework, through that lens, you would come away with the conclusion, wow, what we're seeing in Japan is truly remarkable, really genuinely remarkable, and I would absolutely agree with that, that relative to Japan itself in the past, that's certainly true. But then we have to also take a step back and look at a different lens, which is comparing Japan to other countries around the world. <laughs> and, um, and how about other countries that feel threatened, other countries that have a growing superpower that have designs on territory that the other country thinks it owns, right? So, so how do other threatened countries behave? And in that, using that lens, 1% of GDP, on, I mean, that, that's strikingly low, right? So, so it's like, where's the change here, people? We're, we're nowhere near change. So I think both of those points are really important benchmarks. And they're, they're both true at the same time. Okay, so we do have some guidelines here for, uh, for those of you in the audience who would like to ask a question. Um, First of all, wait for the microphone for the benefit of everyone in the audience, but especially those who are watching online. Um, if you uh, uh, identify yourself, your name and affiliation, if you have one, you have a name, but your affiliation if you have one. Uh, and then also the Jeopardy rule here applies at the Cato Institute, which means you frame your question in the form of a question and should end on a question-sounding question mark. So right here in the front. Uh, yes, sir. And then, uh, no, over here. I got, I got right, right here, and then I'll get you, Pat. Go ahead, sir. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, a member of the Reagan Foundation, a uh, Japan native, U.S. citizen. Uh, I have two questions, uh, basically. But uh, what number one, what are they doing to defend themselves against North Korean aggression, uh, nuclear threat? Uh, because they are under North Korea's radar. Uh, number two, uh, are they willing to go for nuclear weapons uh, if it's allowed? What U.S. is thinking about doing so, are they going to allow what, what the treaty says about that? So those two questions. Uh, I thank you for your comment. Uh, it, it's tough. It's tough to uh, change the uh, Constitution and so forth. You, you, you have no idea how tough it is to to change unless you're Japanese, you know, raised in Japan. It, it's, it's tough. But they should do a lot more, 10 times more, because of China. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Those are two questions there. Well done. Thank you. Uh, who would like to take that? Go ahead. No, no, no you, Jennifer? I Jennifer volunteered. would like. Jennifer, she volunteered you, Jennifer, to answer the question. So, yeah. Okay. Um, 
So, uh, of course, you, you asked about common defense against the North Korean nuclear threat. So, so obviously, there's the anti-ballistic missile uh, programs that, that Japan and the U.S. are increasingly cooperating in, and, and we'll see with respect to, to South Korea as well. Um, on, the, on the question of, of is Japan allowed to go nuclear, uh, I mean, Japan's a sovereign country. Of course it's allowed to go nuclear. <laughs> um, it's, it's allowed to do whatever it wants. Uh, it's, of course, a member of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, so it has pledged to, to not have nuclear weapons. And then it also, on top of that, has the three non-nuclear principles. So uh, it's Japanese law that says um, that they will not maintain, manufacture, keep on Japanese territory, et cetera, nuclear weapons. So, so this would really be quite a change for, for that to occur. Um, uh, I don't see this as something that would happen soon, although in light of recent comments in <laughs> last week, <laughs> this has certainly been up for a lot of speculation lately. Uh, so, so in terms of the nuclear threat, uh, whenever people speak about it from Japan's perspective and say North Korea looks extremely threatening, will the U.S. nuclear umbrella be enough for Japan? I, I always say, well, remember back to the days of the Cold War when Japan had thousands of Soviet missiles pointed at it and it was the, the center of the Pacific Air Forces and, and was absolutely had giant nuclear targets painted on it. And, and during that time, Japan felt secure within the U.S. Uh, nuclear umbrella. So it would, be, it would be kind of surprising to me of kind of a handful of not very well-functioning North Korean nuclear weapons would be what pushed them over the edge. Again, considering, as you noted, the, the massive institutional obstacles to it. I, I don't think it's unthinkable. I mean, ever, basically, prime ministers for decades have been saying, this is constitutional. We can do this, which is a pretty interesting thing. But, um, but there still is that big hurdle of public opinion and, and also just the, the norms in Japanese security policy over the past half century. So I wouldn't expect it soon. Okay, on the wall. Pat's already got the mic. Go ahead, sir. Uh, yes, uh, Pat Span. The, um, I guess I was wondering if I could get the panel's opinion on um, what is the Japanese you know, attitude towards the defense of, say, South Korea and Taiwan, and also what, is there been any um, expression of, of concern and what they plan to do about the uh, what's going on in the South China Sea with the Chinese uh, building up those, um, um, you know, what is it? Make, make, make your own territory islands or whatever you call them. Artificial but uh, I, guess, I guess it's two things. Is, did, did they ever talk about the defense of uh, South Korea or Taiwan, and which I personally think is where the big threat is right now? And also, the, uh, if I remember correctly, um, going back to World War II days, the, the, the passage, the sea passage down there in the South China Sea is extremely important to Japan because I think they get all their oil from the Persian Gulf. Okay, thanks, Pat. So on the South China Sea, actually, Japan has been uh, very vocal about condemning assertive Chinese behavior, the aggressive land reclamation, the militarization of the outposts. Uh, Prime Minister Abe himself um, has given some remarks. I'm most familiar with the remarks he gave at the Shangri-La Dialogue two years ago, right, two years ago, in 20, uh, June of 2014, 
where um, he was pretty, he was very clear about the importance of the South China Sea and maintaining a rules-based order. And, and Abe and other senior level officials have been very consistently giving, you know, similar messages since then. So, yes, Japan does recognize the South China Sea is very important for the reason you mentioned, you know, very uh, important strategic shipping lane um, uh, where a, a huge amount of Japan's um, oil imports and commercial flows um, travel. Uh, and he, they also recognize how important it is for the region, the regional dynamic, the confidence that countries have that they won't be bullied by a big country like China and will be you know, able to maintain their uh, control of their waters and their activities and, um, and, and stick with this kind of main, maintaining the rules-based order. But I'll turn it's to someone else. So, oh. Yeah, I'm um, or Jennifer, do you want to respond to that? The question was whether they talk about, whether they think about the defense of South Korea and Taiwan. I mean, yeah, how much were they thinking about, not just in terms of bilateral U.S.-Japan relations, but also the threats to others in the region? Well, I'm not in those discussions, um, obviously, but um, I mean, certainly the U.S. bases would be um, that are that are based in Japan would be a major um, uh, part of, of defending either Taiwan or South Korea. Um, but I think it's, it's an area of some sensitivity, the extent to which Japan would be engaged in those operations. And we're going to see how those conversations play out, particularly given the relationship between Seoul and Tokyo. Um, I do think it's significant what Amy said in terms about the Japan's greater participation in the regional uh, exercises, and, and including, I mean, if they were to negotiate uh, status of force agreements with countries like the Philippines or others, that would be significant, uh, too. All right, I saw a hand over here on the on the side there. Yes, uh, Dave Fitzgerald, retired Foreign Service and now a private consultant. I had a, um, very much in agreement with the the panel on this uh, position about Japan, but I'm, I'm actually just uh, worried about the use of the term buck passing, as a, particularly as a strategic concept. It leaves your, uh, your entire thesis, uh, so you, you sort of turn it over to people's perception of what buck passing means, and that certainly does not connote a serious effort at doing anything except getting out of responsibilities and put, passing the uh, debts off to somebody else. It's just, uh, to me, a, a wrong term. It's like uh, the so-called free ride on defense or even, you know, Ezra Vogel's book, Japan is Number One, totally distorted. Nobody bothered to read the book. They just took the title. And uh, I think your, your very good thesis has put itself at risk by having a, an association with a title that allows any Yahoo to interpret what that means. And it'll probably come actually, out. It'll they, probably come out negative. They might actually have to read the paper, or at least the portions of the paper that discuss the deep uh, 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 theoretical literature around buck, pay, buck passing. Right. Would so. you re consider revising that use of that term? Uh, no. <laughs> 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 this this is a. I mean, I'm a international security expert, and this is a term from international security. Um, there's balancing. There's bandwagoning. There's buck passing. Uh, this is this is a widely used term, and, and it also, I think, fits this situation pretty well. I, I, I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying in terms of how uh, this, these terms that, you know, we point-headed academics use, how, can, how that might be viewed sensitively or how it might be twisted and manipulated. I remember I was speaking once to someone at a conference uh, 
who said, um, we were talking about uh, unipolarity and the US, US power in the world, and I, and I mentioned the US as a hegemon, and he just recoiled, and, <laughs> and it took me a few minutes, he got really angry, and it took me a few minutes to say, oh, that's not a term for him. Like, that's a very neutral term in international relations <laughs> theory. It's just neutral, it's just, you, it's the preponderance of power, right? It's the, the unipole, but, but the word hegemon obviously does have all these connotations, and so I, I think you're, you're wise to point out that the language we use is really important. Um, with regards to buck passing, though, again, within the framework that, that I'm coming from, Buck passing can be real. Buck passing can be serious. The Americans buck passed to the Europeans in World War II, right? We buck passed to the Soviets. We gave that a pretty darn good effort over there, right? I mean, that, that was not sort of fake and, you know, a patina of, of showing up. We lost a lot of people in, in that engagement. We, we devoted our 40% our of our GDP. I mean, so we were buck passing, but but that was a serious effort. And so there's, it's not necessarily incompatible with a high level of effort. Right. Uh, sir, you also had your hand right there. And then uh, on the wall, uh, on, on the aisle next, lots of questions. Keep My name is Kunio right Kikuchi, and I'm with uh, Washington Research and Analysis, a very small consulting firm. Actually, I've been with the World Bank for 30 years. Thanks. Um, I, I appreciated uh, Jenny's uh, comments that the peace constitution uh, had uh, very strong support, and this gentleman said that also, uh, very strong support within Japan. Uh, what the uh, conventional wisdom is that uh, today, especially, that the US shoved the peace constitution down the throat of the Japanese uh, people, but that's not true. The majority of Japanese, as you analyze correctly, and especially Kijuro Shidehara was one of the authors of this idea. Uh, so that's great. The, but the problem is, uh, it's been 17 ye 70 years. This year was the anniversary of the passage of the peace constitution, which was the most utopian constitution. Other countries, if they adopted it, uh, the world would be a lot better place. And yet, Nobody worries about it anymore. The, main, the question I have is, what is the US position about the peace constitution? Uh, unless we settle that, we have all these amorphous discussions about whether Japan should you know, uh, change it or not. That's a good question, thank you. You wanna take that one? Japan? Yeah, what's the US posture towards the peace constitution, the, the way it's been interpreted and the way it's, it exists now. Yeah, right. Well, I think we've certainly been open to new interpretations of it, um, as we've seen of, you know, in, in the Japanese, um, or the US-Japan's you know, interpretation of, of, uh, of Article 9 and of collective self-defense. Um, so I think that as you know, particularly, uh, I mean, starting with the Cold War, when um, we decided we we needed Japan um, to be with us in, in that struggle, um, but I think it's sort of like saying, can Japan go nuclear? I mean, this is Japan's constitution now. As as much as it may have been, um, you know, imposed by the United States during the occupation, um, this has to be Japan's call in in what you do with it, right? 
Uh, okay. Uh, back here on the aisle, sir, you've been very patient, and then I'll get uh, you uh, there. So go ahead. Uh, my name is Yoshikawa, a Japanese security consultant. Sure. Uh, my question is very simple. If uh, 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 what or how do you think about uh, Mr. Trump's foreign policy about the US-Japan relationship? Mr. Trump. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought we were going to get through an entire forum yeah. and his name not coming up. Thank you, sir, for yeah. raising his name. Thank you for that. Well, we knew this was going to happen, Jennifer. I think you, you can handle this one. She's ready for this one. I know she is. Uh, so the, the first point is that Trump doesn't have a foreign policy, right? Um, so we've, we've seen these rambling remarks that are very incoherent. And uh, there's, there's no coherent foreign policy vision there, right? Like, so we can imagine... You could have this uh, liberal internationalist foreign policy, which is grounded in kind of Kantian ideals and, and various principles about uh, uh, providing stability and providing security guarantees and, and so on. And so you, you start with the first principles and then you say, okay, what do, those what, what do those principles suggest in terms of our policies? You could do the same thing with a realist school and say, okay, this is our view of the world. And so build from there, what does this suggest? for how international politics works, and then therefore for the policies that we do. With Trump, there is none of that. <laughs> there, there are no principles. There's just this idea about, um, I guess, deals, right? So, so looking at it from the standpoint of, are we getting a raw deal in these alliances? And so uh, what, what troubles me the most is just the, the failure to, to sit back and ask, so why do we have these alliances? What, what are the costs of these alliances? We should assess those, and we, we can ask the question in a reasonable fashion. Are there ways to reduce those costs? Are those costs still appropriate? Right? We can have that conversation, but we, we can't have it without considering why do we have these alliances, and what do the alliances do for us, and what kind of a world would we have if we didn't have those alliances? So, so you might get in a very heated debate. I have colleagues in my department who have written on both sides of, of the grand strategic debate. And so the liberal internationalists are, are always making fun of the offshore balancers. And then the offshore balancers are calling them a bunch of dreamers. And you know, so, so you can have these really energetic, smart debates. Um, sadly, that's not what we're being led in at the moment. Um, I was going to write about, I'm going to write about this, but, but since, it, since it came up, I'm struck by Trump's sense of deal-making, right? I mean, th this is the part that I'm struggling with right now. Because in a business community, in a business environment, a deal implies that both parties benefit. Right? I mean, that, that's, that's how I'm taught. That's, that's what I was taught in the business world, right? There must be something mutually beneficial to the deal. Uh, or, it wouldn't, or it wouldn't happen. And you certainly wouldn't go around bragging about how you took the other party to town, right? Uh, because then you have, they have buyer's remorse, right? Or seller's remorse, as the case may be. Um, so when he talks about international deals as being, you know, and, and that it's, it just strikes me as all very zero sum, right? Is that there might actually be some mutual benefit to these, to these deals, and yet 
he doesn't concede that point. So then that does beg the question, then why, do, why on earth are either party, or several parties, if there's more than one, why are they participating in that? It, it, that's the part that seems utter. Now, I will confess that I have not read The Art of the Deal. I will not, okay? Uh, but uh, maybe it's hidden in there. Maybe the, some of you out there in the audience who have read The Art of the Deal can explain to me why my understanding of deal making is, is different from Donald J. Trump's. Okay, there was a uh, right there on the wall and then uh, right in front. Yes, go ahead, Eric, and then right in front of you. Hi, Eric Gomez from upstairs here. Um, on be the Cato Institute. Yeah, be the Cato, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Might have seen us. Um, uh, my question has to do with China and how they feel about U.S. alliance commitments in the region. And I, because I think there might be a, a tension going on, right? Where China doesn't want, uh, clearly U.S. alliances often work at cross purposes with Chinese strategic objectives. However, do they also, I wonder also if they view it as a potential limiting factor, right? Because I think to China, a Japan that is very militarily strong and potentially dangerous, is potentially more dangerous than a Japan locked in an alliance commitment with the United States. So I was wondering if either of you could comment on, has there been any kind of movements within China over hey, do, as, as Japan has been doing more to assume a greater role in the alliance um, recently, has the, have the Chinese kind of said, hey, wait, you know, we don't necessarily want them to be this strong. We like, we like them sort of dependent on the United States. Right, I mean, this also gets to, I mean, so Amy's point was that they have bound themselves more tightly to the United States in the last 10 or 15 years, even as they have done more. Um, from China's perspective, is that a good or a bad thing? Would they rather have a strong Japan that was bound tightly to the United States, a strong Japan that was more independent, or a weak Japan that was bound to the United States? It's almost like a strong Japan bound. Right. Perhaps I mean that's mm -hmm. a quite, I don't know. Have, have you heard Have you heard the Chinese talk well, about certainly this? any indication of Japan advancing its capabilities is met with alarm and criticism. I mean any um, in Beijing, um, and I mean there you can go back to the I think part of the cork in the bottle. I mean I wasn't writing about this in the nineties, but part of that was keeping Japan bound and right. and not as strong. Right. Um, but I think there's probably quarters in Beijing where there's a fear that. Japan's going to build up this capability intertwined with the U.S., but the you know U.S. relative power is going down, and if the U.S. withdraws at all, Japan's still going to be left with that ability. So I, I think that it probably there's lots of arguments going on in Beijing about lots of different things, and this is probably one of them. Right. Can I can I don't know the answer to this question. I'm really interested in it myself. So so all my China expert friends tell me, yeah, if if you you know, give them a few beers. <laughs> the, the Chinese colleagues will will confess that they they they, as, as you say, they they like the institution of the alliances, which they openly say is this kind of cork in the bottle, right? I mean, that's just that's a formulation that Washington has is, is utterly abandoned and sees as just totally outdated, right? I mean, which that was at the oh, beginning of the was. alliance that was ab absolutely yeah, explicitly yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. a big part of the story, but. Over time, that's just completely, I mean, not the way we see this relationship at all. In Korea and China, however, you routinely hear this cork in the bottle metaphor all the time. Uh, so that's pretty fascinating to me because it's, it's like terminology that 
ever since. Sounds like we need to buy some new journals and books for Korean and Chinese <laughs> libraries. Uh, they're reading some, you know, 30-year-old material, I guess. But the, the, um, the, the China experts, again, they keep telling me, okay, they actually like this alliance for the cork-in-the-bottle reason. But then, I, I mean, when, when I look at this, if I had to say, do they like it, what I would look at is I would say, okay, well, uh, the Chinese talk about an alliance-free region, they, they talk about a new type of great power relationship, which basically to Japanese ears means selling out Tokyo, right? And so the Japanese are deeply threatened by that. Um, they also seem to be looking for the, the weak points in the U.S.-Japan alliance and probing them <laughs> as, as very firmly as they seem to be getting away with. So, so I'm referring to like history issues, for example, where Washington is, is frequently very upset about the way that history is remembered in Japan, and then, and then also the territorial issue, which is, again, the, the asymmetry of interest there uh, is, a, is an area where the adversary could potentially exploit. And so all of that is happening. So again, if, if, if Chinese policy is aimed at strengthening this alliance, they're going about it in a very strange fashion. All right. Well, there was a question there, and I've been, realized I've been privileging this side of the room, so mm-hmm. I'll get to right there, right there in the middle in the back in the blue shirt. Go ahead. Yes, ma'am, right there. Hi. My name is Anvita Baldota, and I'm a student from UCLA. I had a question. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Japan would, was probably going in a more unilateral or self-reliant position in the alliance. And what I was thinking was, if it should happen in the future that U.S. decided to withdraw its troops uh, that it has stationed there as of now. Um, Would China then consider a direct confrontation possible with Japan? And to add to that, is uh, the presence of U.S. troops in Japan as of now an important deterrent for maybe another global conflict? Excellent question. How how significant is the is the physical, on-the-ground U.S. troop presence in, in Japan to, to both countries. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, this is something you definitely hear in Tokyo, which is you'll, you'll hear particularly conservative politicians saying, oh, if the, the U.S. alliance commitment seems to be waning, then Beijing is going to pounce. Right? So they, they seem to either believe it or, or certainly are using this, this rhetoric that the, the commitment is, is definitely a deterrent. Um, I, I guess I would, to answer the question, I would want to know, well, what do we think China, what about the status quo vis-a-vis Japan is China interested in changing? I mean, I, I don't think they're going to wake up one day and invade Japan, right? I mean, that just doesn't seem in the cards. But, but they do seem interested in changing the status quo over the Senkaku Islands. And, and if the, the U.S. deterrent was not there, uh, again, Japan would need to increase its own deterrent before the, the Chinese would decide, okay, that's not something we could get away with, right? Um, there are uninhabited islands, which makes it even more difficult to say, well, what does it mean to succeed in taking uninhabited islands? So it's, it's, it's a strange, very useful, I think, thought process to think about, like, what exactly are we deterring? How would we know if we're no longer deterring, and, and what, what would the changes in the status quo actually look like? Uh, yes, sir, in the middle. Yes, yeah, sir. Ken Meyercourt. I, I produce a TV show on world affairs. Um, China thinks we're trying to contain them. We say we're not. Uh, would it be a positive step uh, to show that we're ready to accommodate the uh, 
increased uh, status of China politically, military, economically. If we told the Japanese that uh, the Senkaku Islands do not fall under our mutual defense pact, I know the pact calls for us, uh, calls for the territories administered by Japan as falling under the pact, but at the time the pact was signed, the Senkakus were not under That's Japan's right. administrative control. And we're the ones who gave administrative control to the Japanese over the islands, despite China's better historical claim. Uh, couldn't we tell the Japanese we made a mistake? Uh, those don't fall under the pact. You'll just have to work that out with uh, China. And uh, ought to, just to you, you, Jennifer is all about apologies, right? She wrote a whole book about apologies. That's really great. Well, oops, we, we're really well. Sorry don't about don't, that. don't call it a apology. It's not an apology. It's a mistake. <laughs> well, or change of thought, whatever. Uh, I just that's think a good question. If we're if we're not willing to make that minor concession to the Chinese, it pretty well argues that we are trying to contain. Right. Them. Well, I, I want to hear Jenny's response, but a minor concession on our part might not look like a minor concession on the part of the Japanese. I suspect. Jennifer. Uh, wow, there's so much interesting stuff in there. I don't know where to start. <laughs> uh, yes, um, right here uh, so, so first of all, I think that the 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 change that in theory that you, you're proposing is is the U.S. could back away from that position and, and say, you know, we would encourage international arbitration on this or, or something like that. Like we, we we don't actually guarantee this because we don't know who the sovereignty lies with, and so we we encourage that the ICJ or some appropriate body uh, deals with this issue. That that would be a massive backpedal for the United States. Um, uh, again, that's. That, that's not the sort of thing that, that I think a, a strong country would make, and that the Chinese would absolutely look at that as, um, as just completely knuckling under. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I certainly would advise not that. Not endorsing that. I'm not endorsing that. I, I would also I would like to weigh in on this as well. I'd also just add, I mean, you know, the howls that would come um, from, from around the world if that happened. But also, this is not happening in isolation, given China's other activities in other parts um, of the East-South China Sea. I mean, I think that that's a huge part of how we're dealing um, with the Senkaku issue. Right, saying it, it is not unique to Senkaku. If it, a concession in that place would be taken as an invitation. Other place. Yes, sir, right in the front. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, my name is Yong Yun. Uh, Hold your mic up nice and close to your right. mouth. Yes, sir. I am teaching economics at the George Mason University. Uh, I don't pretend any expertise on this issue going on here. But uh, my casual observation is uh, uh, considering Japan's success, economic success and the economic power, Japan has been very shy in exercising leadership. Is that Japan's own choice, or is that external restriction Japan faces, like, uh, for example, uh, in a mistrust of the neighboring countries like uh, China and uh, Korea. Good question. Thank you. Thoughts? Exercising leadership. Uh, I think it's a it's a great question. It's uh, I, I think it's very much Japan's choice uh, that, as as I talked about earlier, uh, there were different voices in Japan advocating an even more dovish strategic posture, but there were of course other voices in Japan. Uh, advocating a more hawkish posture than that is than what they actually perceive. So instead of the buck passing notion, they, they wanted to go much more toward an independent defense policy, like Dick Samuels has, has discussed in his books, these different strategic choices. Right. And so Japan chose 
based on the, the different internal and external uh, forces that they were dealing with, they, they chose this moderate course. Um, it's not really moderate, it's quite dovish, right, <laughs> toward the more dovish end. Um, and so, yeah, that was absolutely Japan's choice. And, and if anything, uh, so, so the U.S. has been eager to <laughs> have Japan do even more. And, and so Japan has, has sort of uh, tried to temper that as the years have gone by. And, and then in terms of the, you mentioned about regional views of Japan, I, I think that's played a role too in, in, in that people in Japan see that there is mistrust in the region, at least parts of the region, right? Uh, I wish Amy were still here because uh, Southeast Asia actually, as, as she's talking about, really welcomes uh, Japanese military uh, cooperation and so on. But there, there, there still is this mistrust in the region in the sense that if Japan were to adopt a more assertive strategy, then that could be self-defeating for Japan in that it would you know, uh, get, get countries in the region uh, worried and, and thus potentially more mobilized against Japan. So, so all of that definitely, though, has been part of Japan's own choice to move toward this security posture that did. I do think the Japanese would say, correct me if I'm wrong, the Japanese would say they were leading through their economic and their, their economic leadership and their diplomacy before they became, uh, cons uh, were contemplating greater uh, kind of military capabilities and more assertive security cooperation. So uh, as the one second and now still third largest economy in the world, they have vast capacity uh, uh, to, to uh, engage in dollar diplomacy or whatnot, things like that. And there's a strain, I think, that's that's happened in the last several years where Japan, I mean, probably mostly because of Abe, saying we weren't given enough credit for what we did right. do before in terms right. of our overseas assistance, yeah. in terms of leadership and nonproliferation or, you know, all these other areas. And there's sort of this Japan is back idea where, you know, they're looking to sort of to, to reclaim some of that. Great. All right. Well, I want to thank you all for coming today. I thought this was a terrific discussion. I want to thank especially uh, Jennifer for writing this paper and for Emma and, and Amy uh, for being here. Uh, uh, it doesn't stop here, however. If you, uh, uh, if you can, I'd like you to join us upstairs in the George M. Yeager Conference Center for continued discussion. Our conference staff folks will, uh, will show you the way. Thank you very much. <laughs>